Then the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the terebinth tree of Mamre. And as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring you a morsel of bread, and you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And so he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure with my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I'll return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he, that would be the Lord, said, no, but you did laugh. It's a great story. I love this story. There's a lot to it. First of all, it's a theophany. We have an Old Testament appearance of Christ here. Because as Scripture interprets Scripture, we're told that it is the Lord. The Lord appeared to him. And we know no one's ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he has declared him. So we have these times in the Old Testament where Christ, who is before all things and through whom all things exist, has Old Testament appearances that are referred to as theophanies, appearances of God, or Christophanies, appearances of Christ. And we've covered this a few times already as we covered Melchizedek a couple chapters ago. So here comes the Lord. Now, if there's any question, remember, we see this with the Gospels as well, with the angels there at the tomb of Jesus, where we're told they're men and then we're told they're angels. And we know from Scripture that angels t- can take on human form. We understand that. And this is a classic example. These are angels. Because in the next chapter, chapter 19, the two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have the Lord in a Christophany, and we have two angels with the Lord coming to Abraham. And remember, we saw this Saturday night in great detail connecting the text of Genesis 17 to Romans chapter 4, that all of this is a prelude to Jesus Christ. That verse that we chose Verse 6 of chapter 17, where God affirms and expands the promises, that's the verse the Holy Spirit leads Paul the Apostle to use in Romans 4 to show us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our offenses and raised for our justification. So these are all shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. So it would only make sense that Jesus shows up here. Now, Abraham's 99 at this point. He's been believing the promises, his own efforts to bring about the promises with Ishmael through Hagar, the surrogate mother. Ishmael's 13. A whole other decade's gone by and the mess that created. But remember, God said, I'll bless Ishmael because I'm a blessing God. But the promises are in Isaac because that's what I do. It's not what you do. Grace isn't about you earning my favor. Grace is me speaking my favor and you believing in my favor. And we understand that's the gospel. So here comes Jesus in an Old Testament Christophany with the two angels 
And the focal point of this visit is Sarah. It's Sarah. Now, in the New Testament, there in Hebrews 11, where we read the heroes of the faith, the Hall of Faith, or the Hall of Fame, Sarah pops in there at about verse 11, Hebrews 11, 11. So you get, by faith we know that God spoke everything in existence out of nothing. By faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, Enoch walked with God and was not, for the Lord called him up. By faith, Noah built the ark with the godly reverence, moving the fear for the saving of his household. And then we get by faith in Hebrews 11, 8, Abraham went to the land of promise, not knowing where he was going. And then we read that by faith, that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, were tent dwellers. And they waited for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. They were pilgrims. But then we get Sarah, who by faith, Sarah believed God, and she counted him faithful who had promised it. So when we look at this text, we need to get the prism, the kaleidoscope, if you will, and look at this passage based upon that passage. Because see, this is the way it works. We see the here and now, but fairly often God will show us in the New Testament, looking back, how he views someone's life. For example, David. David's sins are all over the Old Testament. But there in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus takes the title, Son of David. When David ate the showbread, that was against the law. It was for the priest, and yet God didn't strike him down. And then Jesus interprets that for us, that God looks at the heart, and it's more the heart than the action. We, we get a lot of that. The New Testament giving us a fuller picture of the Old Testament. It's kind of like World War II in HD color. Uh, we grew up with those black and white documentaries of World War II, and now they've all been made HD color. Or they even have found colored film because colored film came about during, obviously, The Wizard of Oz is like 1941, where you had the black and white and they brought in color uh, capacities. And so the second part of World War II has, particularly like the South Pacific, begins to have colored film. But you look back, and, and so when you have the color enhancement, you're enhancing something that's illuminating something that's already there, but giving you a, a, a look that we see it. And they've been said with these documentaries on World War II in color, it's not a black and white war. It was very much in color for my grandfather, who was three years in the South Pacific. It wasn't black and white. For me, it was black and white. But for my grandfather, who was gone for three years, it was in color. The color of blood on D-Day plus two at Iwo Jima. So... The New Testament will look back to the Old Testament and give us a fuller picture. And this is important because when Sarah's laughing, it's kind of like, I didn't laugh. No, but the Lord says, but you did. How often in our life do we go like, I didn't do that, but you did. Like you have all these reality shows that bust people and they say they didn't do it and then they prove that they did do it, right? You know, it's like, and, but you did. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, She's in the Hall of Faith, and she's the first woman in the Hall of Faith. It's amazing. It's beautiful. So she's 90. She's beautiful. She's so attractive that Abraham's going to lie about her being his sister again with Abimelech in just a couple chapters. She's a gorgeous woman. Now, that degeneration of uh, entropy and the breaking down of the molecular structure in a post-flood world, remember, like, the drop-off was substantial after the post-flood. So where someone like Noah lived plus 300 years after the flood, the descendants in the Ice Age, post-flood Ice Age, had happened, they're all living significantly less. So I think Abram's about 140, 142 is his total. So 
Sarah at 90 maybe doesn't look as old as we think 90 looks now, but 90 was still old. Maybe not as old, but it's still old. And she was beautiful. She's a very attractive woman. But she's past menopause. It literally means in the Hebrew, she is past the manner of women. She does not have a period. She doesn't, she's menopause. She's past having children. It's not going to happen. So she laughs like, really? But you see, think of the blemish it was on her. So she's this beautiful woman. I mean, she's gorgeous. And her husband's super successful, hundreds of employees, lots of gold, silver, money, cattle. No one messes with them. God's promised them everything. Whatever he touches, it gets better. And she's beautiful, but the one thing she can't do is give him children. She's barren. And we know that can be a big issue. In most cultures today, it still is a really big issue. Not so much in our death culture, but in most cultures, it is. It's still, especially in the Middle East, it's a big deal in that culture. She's beautiful, but that'd be like the scorn upon her by other women. Be like, well, she can't have children, so, you know, whatever, right? We know how catty the world gets and how it can be. And yet, in that, God was using that. From her affliction and her humiliation publicly, and then she gives Hagar, the maidservant, to sleep with her husband, to have a son as a surrogate mother, and then they're all hanging out together in the tent for 13 years at dinner. Talk about your blended family dysfunction. Yeah, it just was a choppy thing. But in all that, she's commended for her faith. Sometimes it's just so hard for us to really believe how good God is and how great he is and how much of a blessing God he is. I think that the way life works and the way different people are wired, we might have a disposition like, well, someone else always gets the job. Someone else always gets the date. Someone else always gets the prom. Someone else always gets to be the starting quarterback. Someone else always gets this. Someone else always gets that. Someone else gets into UCSD, not our kids. You know, it's just, it's like you can get like that and you don't get your hopes up. And depending on how you're raised, you might not get your hopes up very much at all. If you had a paternal figure that promised things that didn't deliver, you don't get your hopes up. That's why it's so important for fathers to let their yes be yes. It's so critical. And mothers, of course, too. I'm like a, well, I'm Uncle Joey to Jimmy, Cousin Jimmy, my sister's kid. But he just, it's so hard for him to get his hopes up for anything. And he's been an army ranger. He's about to graduate the police academy. But he's done some foolish things in his youth and he's upper 20s now and trying to reboot his life with the GI Bill and he just can't, I'm always like, Jimmy, you, you got to trust in God. He's got good things for you, but it's so hard for him to, to, to have that confidence because his dad had married like five women, kids from all of them. Most of the kids don't want anything to do with his dad. And his dad went to prison for 12 years for drug trafficking. And when Jimmy was a little kid in the late 90s and we lived there in Cardiff, he, his dad would call and say, I'm going to take you to the Charger game and then he wouldn't show up. So we'd watch the Charger game at Grandma Pat's house, then we'd go to Thrifty's and get ice cream. We'd do what we could. A lot of people have skewed concepts of a father. Our father is a loving father. He's Abba Father. He's holy. He's all-powerful. He's benevolent. And he's a good, good father, like the song sings. And 
But when you have had a skewed concept or you feel like somehow through a trial and an affliction or a tribulation that you have going in your life, that maybe God isn't good. That maybe he, or he's good, but not to you. Those are for someone else. I used to always think God was out to get me, right? I'd do more bad than good. So I'd go to mass, dip the holy water, and then I'd do worse things on Friday. Then I'd try to do good things on Sunday. And it was that vicious cycle. And it wasn't until I understood grace it is finished, that I really understood it. God's good. I'm not earning this. I'm receiving this. God's not out to destroy us. God said through Ezekiel the prophet, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is for us. So Sarah, like she has faith, but it's a guarded faith. It's like a guarded optimism. And maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you're like that. Where it's like, yeah. And what we've been saying for weeks here at Worship Generation we think of the promises of God like, well, that's for Greg Laurie. That's for Brian Broderson. That was for Pastor Chuck. That's for Cheryl Broderson. That, you know, that's just for someone else. That's for Ann Graham Lotz fighting cancer or something, you know. But like someone like Billy Graham's daughter, that's for her. But no, the promises are universally for followers of Jesus Christ. We have all the promises in Jesus Christ. All the promises are yes and Amen. And so we need to learn that those promises are for us. And just because God's given us no's or weights, it doesn't mean he's not a good, good father. God is light and in is no darkness at all. I'm very blessed that my children love me because they've lived with me for almost 30 years off and on. And they know me better than anyone knows me. The fact that all four of them are walking with the Lord makes it even better. It's like the bonus. I've tried just like you have. Some ways I've, hopefully the good outweighs the bad. There's days I can forget about. But God is light, and him is no darkness at all. And so for Sarah, what she needed to learn as the mother of the child of promise, and Isaac means laughter, because it's a laughter. It's like, it's like a prelude, the warm-up band for the virgin birth. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, she's like, well, okay, so how does that happen? And God says it, and it's fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah. She had no precursor to understand it, so how's that going to be? But she believed it. What is amazing about Genesis 2 is all three women, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, and Rachel, are all barren. And through their barrenness, God shows his strength to fulfill his promises and give them children by promise. Now, not a virgin birth, obviously, but the matriarchs of the faith were all barren. God uses infirmities. He uses afflictions for his glory and to press people into him. When I have my bad back, I pray with more fervency. I listen with greater clarity and I start making vows because when you're in pain, you start making vows with the Lord. Not that you need to bargain with the Lord, but it's a good time to reevaluate everything. But he's a good, good father. And the key phrase is, is anything too hard for the Lord? I've got a really good rap song on my DJ board. Big God, little problem. Pastor Chuck used to teach on that a lot at Calvary Costa Mesa. You got a headache? Oh, brother, we'll pray for you. Oh, yeah, I can believe God for a headache. Cancer? Oh, I can't believe God for that. Big God, little problem. God didn't change. God did not change. 
We're unstoppable until God's done with us. And when he's done with us, who'd want to be here past that time anyways? I'm not looking forward to being in my 90s. There's not a lot that I see in the 90s that makes it desirable. But if I get there, I believe that God's not done. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What she is going to experience through this miracle of having a child after being in menopause and not even having the menstrual cycle. This child is a child of promise. This child is going to be called laughter because it's crazy, it's ridiculous, because God does the supernatural. And I feel so sorry for atheists and agnostics who limit God to their skewed perception of science which is not science at all because it comes from a faulty basis of unbelief because the fool said in his heart, there is no God. Science is observable and provable. I feel sorry for people who base their soul upon their skewed concepts of theories, not facts. Fact is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God is over everything. And he can help you walk on water if you're Peter. He can have you pull the coin out of the mouth of the fish. He can raise you from the dead if you're Jairus' daughter. God can do anything. He'll never do anything inconsistent with his character, but God can do anything. And throughout the New Testament, we see time and time again, God is able. Best summed up in Ephesians 3, God is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask in his church for his glory. It's never about the affliction, the infirmity, or the humiliation, or anything like that. It's about what is God teaching you in your heart to produce the character of Christ. And after 90 years, homecoming queen, the prom queen, all that she's had to learn, my princess. Her name was my princess. Dad named her my princess. Like talking daddy's girl if there ever was a daddy's girl. After 90 years through her experiences of learning she can't manufacture the things of God that are promised by God, she laughs and all women laugh with her and all humanity laughs with her because she gave birth to Isaac, which means laughter, and through Isaac comes Jacob and through Jacob comes Judah and through Judah comes David and through David comes Jesus. 2,000 years later, God speaks it and he brings it to pass. So whatever we might face, the challenges of life, and they are relentless, is anything too hard for the Lord. Don't let our problems reduce little God, big problems. Because it's big God, little problems. And the promises, though universal of equality for followers of Jesus Christ, they are also personal for you and I for everything that we face. God is able. And as we say, like Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego in the fiery furnace in Babylon 600 years before the time of Christ, our God is able to deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, know that we will never worship your gods. And there in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar says, I see, didn't I put three in the fire? But there's four and one like the sons of God in that fire with them. Yes, it happened, and they didn't smell like fire. Who's ever had a beach campfire and not walked away smelling like fire? When the women did their beach bonfire, Jennifer came home, she smelled like 
a Brookhurst PCH fire ring. God is able to be with you in the fire and get you out of the fire without even smelling like fire. He can make Nebuchadnezzar eat grass. God is able, and God is not mocked. So laugh, Sarah, and just receive it. No, but you did laugh. Okay, yeah, I did. In less than a year's time, that which was her driving obsession is going to come to pass. She's going to be a 90-year-old mother. And even in a a post-flood world and a post-Ice Age world, it's pretty special. It's miraculous. And that's why he's laughter. And that's why God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now we read on verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abram went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I'm doing since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. If not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he, the Lord said, if I find there 45, I'll not destroy it. And he, Abraham, spoke to him again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he that is the Lord said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he, Abraham, said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. And so he said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, "Now, indeed now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he that is the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is a wonderful story of Abraham interceding for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, his nephew, Lot, lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, he already rescued Lot when he went after Tadalaomar and the kings back in chapter 14, that commando ray that was successful. He saved the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He saved their wealth, their people, everything. We saw that. And he took nothing from them. And here now he sees where it's going and he's got relatives that he loves and cares about that live there. And he's pleading for them. He's interceding for them. It's noteworthy, again, quoting the book of Ezekiel. God said, I look for someone to stand in the gap as an intercessor for my people, and yet I found no one. It's a wonderful and commendable thing when our hearts break for other people who don't know the Lord, who fight the Lord, who reject the Lord, and to intercede for them. We just never know what God might do and allow in their life in circumstances to draw them to himself. God is looking for people who care, that have his heart for people, and are willing to take risk 
to say maybe what people don't want to hear, but what's true, as it says there in the New Testament, speaking the truth in love, but it's true. People that will take time to love their enemies, pray for those who spitefully use them, and abuse them. It doesn't come naturally. You have to be a woman of faith to want to pray for people who are against you or indifferent to you. You have to be a man of faith to really take time and set aside time to pray for the lost. That year I spent in Vermont was a very interesting year for a number of reasons, and I do talk about it fairly often. But before I went to Vermont in the church there in Virginia Beach, we had hundreds of people come out to the church. There's a lot of military families, of course, because it was Virginia Beach and the Marines were there and the Navy, Atlantic Fleet, things like that. But when I'd pray for the church in Virginia Beach, I had a prayer list. And it was like all believers and all these families and people that watch salty videos with their kids, the kids praise and Brentwood Kids Company, people that shopped at heaven and earth to buy their music and stuff like that. Very Bible Belt. I didn't really pray for a lot of non-believers. Now, when we got to Vermont, I didn't know anybody except a couple of people that moved there with us to help start the church. And when I got the job there at the Sheraton Hotel, I was surrounded by non-believers, many of which who were hostile to me because they're hostile toward the Lord or indifferent toward Jesus because they're religious in a form of Christianity, but denying the power thereof, Jesus Christ. And what I found is something very interesting. In Virginia Beach, I had a prayer list that looked like this of people that go to church. But in Vermont, I had a prayer list that looked like this of people who were opposed to the Lord and even opposed to me. It was quite an unusual experience. Like, and I told you, I'd worked in room service. There's a small space, two-man team, take the phone order. There's a prepper who gets all the food ready and someone who's running the food. And times were very busy. It was the, the main hotel in the whole state of Vermont, the Sheraton. It was the, that's where Bill Clinton and the governor's convention was in 1996. It's a really special place to work. But I worked with criminal dishwashers, felons. I worked with people that were going to college that were really smart and thought it was fun to boss me around as a 34-year-old Californian working minimum wage underneath them. It was a very interesting experience. But I got to share my faith a lot because my faith got attacked a lot. But my prayer list were all these people that didn't know the Lord. It changed my whole perspective in ministry seven years into being a pastor. Can you imagine the joy when I came to work that one afternoon going up the stairs and Owen the dishwasher was coming down the stairs? I said, Owen, how are you doing? And he goes, not so good. And all of a sudden he just starts crying. Now, Owen was in his 30s. He had thick glasses, really thick glasses. He's a dishwasher in his 30s. Like, if you've never worked in the restaurant world, that's the bottom Okay, that's like the entry level. Now, room service went above. We'd get the dirty dishes and take them to him. And he's like, my life is meaningless. I'm going nowhere. So I was actually about 15 minutes early that day, and I got to share with him. We went to lunch uh, at a later time. He received the Lord. It's the only person that I ever prayed with in Vermont in 14 months of my life that cost me pretty much everything I ever owned, apart from my family, but my assets, to learn the value of one soul. To this day, we need to understand that God has a heart for the lost. I often wonder how he's doing. We need to have a heart for the lost. Abraham has a heart for the lost in this passage, and he's pleading with God 
negotiating with God, not for his wife to have the son of promise. That's already established. Not for more cattle, more employees, more wealth. He is pleading for God to show mercy on a city whose evil rises before the throne of God. There's a lot to be said for that. I I think there's something we can really lay hold of right there. I encourage you in application to think of people you know, family, friends, acquaintances, relatives, adversaries who don't know the Lord and to pray for them that their eyes would be open to come to the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be women and men who plead before the Lord for the lost in our timeline, 2019, like Abraham pleaded before the Lord for the lost of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's nothing new under the sun. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were, you know, to read about Sodom and Gomorrah, the New Testament summarizes Sodom and Gomorrah for us where it says this concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, that when they were judged, that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man Lot was dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing of their lawless deeds. That's what he said in Second Peter. And then in the book of Jude, the Holy Spirit, so that was Peter, the Holy Spirit through Peter. And then in Jude, the Holy Spirit said this about Sodom and Gomorrah. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God's fire is eternal, and God does judge. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the summary of the New Testament is that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of the end of the wicked. And there's nothing sadder than doing a memorial for someone that wasn't saved. Like, well, you know, you hope they were saved. I'm just like, well, you know, they kind of went to church. Like, you know what? You just talk about the value of their life, and then you present the gospel. But I've done memorials where you're doing people that had the fruit of living a life for the Lord. And let me tell you, as a minister, it's a lot more enjoyable to do the one where people have fruit. We got to care while we're in time, space, and matter. And by now approaching 60, I've got a lot of friends that have stepped into eternity and I can't go back and pray for them. They're gone and they're not coming back. But there's still people around that we can pray for. And the end of Sodom and Gomorrah is the end of all people without Christ. We pick it up in chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah that evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here my, now, my lords, please turn in your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted, Lot did strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, before the, they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. They're going to rape them. So Lot went out to them and through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let them bring them out, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. And then they said, this one came to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. 
Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hand, pulled Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck the men, that is the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were at the doorway of the house, with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary trying to find the door. This is what happened. A couple interesting things about this part of the text here with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Very interesting. You know, Lot is a believer. We just read the text from 2 Peter that says, righteous Lot. Now, we look at his life. There's nothing that's righteous about it, and it gets worse as the chapter goes on. But we talk about when we're saved by faith, our righteousness is imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness. Now, our practical righteousness can go up and down. We have letters written to wonderful churches like the Thessalonians who walk strong with the Lord, were excited about his return. They're short letters. They're happy letters. They're good letters. Then you got long letters like the Corinthians who are carnal. They're still righteous and they're still saved. They're born again. They pass from death to life. But they are carnal and worldly in their lifestyle. And they require a lot of time. Thus they get longer letters in the New Testament from the Holy Spirit. But the healthy churches like the Ephesians, shorter. Philippians, persecuted church, shorter. Four chapters. You guys are doing great. To live as Christ, die as gain. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Corinthians, I hear that there's divisions and strife, and you say, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paul, I'm a this and that and everything else, and you're, you're having sexual, incestual relationships, and you permit it in your church. See, that, they, were still right. they were still saved by faith, but they weren't letting the Holy Spirit do the work he wanted to do in their life. That's Lot in the Old Testament. We're told he's righteous by the New Testament looking back. But he's such a warning to us. But interesting, right? So he's like the kind of person who's super carnal in the world, but when the pastor comes around, he can speak Christianese. There's people like that. See, there's a reason like I give space at food and fellowship, not sit at your table. The, the conversation always changes when I sit at the table. Food and fellowship, wedding. Everyone gets in their best behavior when the pastor sits down at the table. So I just stand up, let you guys talk what you want to talk about. You can find me when you want to talk to me. Lot is not much different than Abraham when the angels came. What does he do? He bows down. Let's have a meal. Come to my house. See, he knows truth when he sees it. He recognizes the kingdom when it's come. But he's just living in Sodom. Remember, he pitched his tent by Sodom, and now he's in the gate. He's an important person. He's pretty important. And obviously, he compromised some things. And look what the men say when they want to rape the angels. Who do you think you are? Well, by the way, my uncle saved all of you. That's who I am. Uncle Abraham saved all of you, saved your wives or your boyfriends or whatever you got, saved all your wealth. He wouldn't take one sandal strap from you. I'll tell you who I am. I'm Uncle Abraham's nephew. That's who I am. And I'm telling you, don't touch these men. But see, the wicked don't bless the Lord. They don't praise the Lord and they don't thank the Lord. They just go back to being wicked. There's a lot of proverbs that you can deliver a man time and time again. But the fool, no matter how many times you beat his back, he's still a fool. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were fools. They owe their life and everything they are to Lot. But he's in a tough way. He's in a tough way because he's pitched camp in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's about to get judged from heaven above. It's not hailstones like in Texas, like a good summer thunder bumper that breaks car windows. This isn't random. This is deliberate, and it's brimstone and fire. Is anything too hard for the Lord? For the promises are yes. Is anything too hard for the Lord when you're outside those promises? God judges sin, and we need to look no farther than Jesus on the cross to know how serious sin is. 
So either he's going to judge it on Jesus and we receive that gift, or he's going to judge it like Sodom and Gomorrah and the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, sea level. Not random. Absolute. But righteous Lot recognizes the holy moment, but he's not going to protect the angels. They're going to protect him. God doesn't need our defending. We need his defending. We read on. Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place? For we will destroy this place because the outcry against him has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up and get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters, who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he, the angel, said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which came up like smoke of the furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow, which he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. couple interesting things. Abraham intercedes for Sodom, and Lot pleads for a place to go to the mountains, and God grants the life of a city because righteous Lot is going to go there and find refuge. There's just a blessing that flows from the redeemed. There's a blessing that flows from the redeemed. Our lives are meant to be a blessing, even when judgment's coming. And the place of refuge, man, God is personal. Did you catch that? Lot says this, and Zoar gets spared because righteous Lot is going there. And it goes back to the previous chapter. Far be it from you to judge the righteous with the wicked. He doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. God's not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through Jesus Christ. We are children of the light, First Thessalonians tells us, not children of the night. We are to walk in the light. God has not appointed us to wrath, First Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us. And in Revelation chapter 6, at the end of the age, in the great tribulation period, we're told that the wrath of the Lamb has come, and who can stand? That's not us. We're not here. The church isn't on the planet for the wrath of the Lamb. He paid the price. God so loved the world that he gave his son and punished his son that we would find refuge in the son. Forgiveness and righteousness. 
So we go forward with what the Lord has for us. And you know what's radical about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's so uninhabitable. It is the Salt Sea now and that, that far southeast region of modern Israel. You know, the nation of Israel, they tried to do the tourist boats there in the Dead Sea, and the salt is so intense, they can't have tourist boats, nothing. Anything alive comes down the Jordan River, it hits the Dead Sea, it'd just be dead, dead, dead. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea. That's judgment. Still, 4,000 years later, a testimony on this planet, that's judgment. Just like the cross is a testimony of judgment. But you know what's radical about Sodom and Gomorrah and the Dead Sea, is that we're told in the prophecies of the Old Testament that when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom at his second coming, which is consistently taught throughout the Old and New Testament, that the Dead Sea will come to life, that living waters will flow from Jerusalem and make the Dead Sea alive, and the horses will have the bells on them that say, holiness to the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I believe it. You should. Because whether you believe it or not, it's going to come to pass because God speaks it in his word and all of his promises are yes, yes. I intend to be around either in a glorified body or this temporal tent, which doesn't sound like a good deal actually, but I prefer the glorified body, but God has spoken it and it'll come to pass. That Dead Sea that's from this judgment, life. God's not into death. He's into life. But the life is in the blood and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There is no injustices in heaven. There is no injustices in eternity. God said to Abraham when he pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah that you would walk before me. It all ties together. That from a mighty nation will come for me and that I've made known to him, myself known to him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice. That's what the people of covenant have, to do righteousness and justice. That's why we encourage our children to do the right thing because it's always the right time to do the right thing. Martin Luther King Jr., it's always the right time to do the right thing. Sign a contract, fulfill the contract. Say you're going to do it, do it. Someone's down and out. Do what you can. It's all, when it's in you to do it, the poor and the rich, the Lord has made them both. It's always the right time to do the right thing. So we raise, we do the right thing. We raise our children and our children's children and our children's after our children's children to do the right thing. You know, I think about my free time, how to bring the gospel into Zippy and Belzy and Clementine's life. I pray for them. I think I'm going to bring them the gospel in their world, just like I brought it into Hannah and Leah's world and Timmy and Luke's world. That's what I think about. And all you grandparents know exactly what I'm talking about on that one. That's what I think about. Because God's will is not for our children to be associated with Sodom and Gomorrah and the wrath, but to be saved by the grace. That is what God would have, that we would believe the righteousness received through faith in Jesus Christ and we demonstrate the righteousness as God wills and works through us for his good pleasure in our timeline. There's the righteous acts, the right things for us to do right now in 2019 in our lives that God makes clear to us. And they'll be the right things for Zippy and Velzy to do. Oh, and they're in high school and they're 14, 15, 16. They'll be the right things for them to do. When Clementine's in her 30s, the Lord tarries. They'll be the right things for her to do at work, toward her husband, toward her community. 
And if Zippy has children and children's children, 2085, 2105, Jesus is the same yesterday and forever. There'll be the right things for those descendants to do. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants us on the side of the promises. And by all means, do not look back. Do not look back. You know, people read something, it's like, oh, you know, you do Wikipedia a lot, so I think, oh, like some fairy tale. We're like, it's not a fairy tale. It's in the word of God. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. It's one of the shortest sentences Jesus ever spoke. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Jesus said, anyone putting their hands to the plow for his namesake and looking back is not worthy of his kingdom. Remember Lot's wife. And the context of that in the Gospel of Luke is the second coming of Christ to be ready for his return. Remember Lot's wife. It's always forward. Or as Philippians says, forward, onward, upward. Now we close out with these last few verses with Lot's... (laughs) It is what it is. Verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar... And he and his two daughters dwelt in the cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's no man of the earth to come into us sexually and the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and he will lie with us that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father, and he did not know when she had laid down or when she arose. So he obviously was stone drunk. Verse 34. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. You go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they also made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And she didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. He did not know. Thus both daughters of Lot were a child by their father. The firstborn bore a son called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of this day. And the younger she also bore a son called his name Benami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Well, that's Lot's legacy. The funeral wouldn't have been that special. It wouldn't have been. I love how the Bible is just so honest about the human experience. God knows. He knows everything. The only thing I'd say about this is two for two with alcohol. Both times we've seen alcohol so far in human history, people are drunk. Both times they're naked and embarrassing themselves. Over two, alcohol. So far in Genesis.